The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is not Mary Woods, this is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge and Mary's taking a break today. But I'm glad because I have with me today um, Scott Kellogg. Scott is a doctorate in clinical psychology who's currently assistant professor at New York University. Um, Previously, he was at Rockefeller University's Yale and Columbia. Um, Scott Kellogg is the past president of the Division of Addictions in New York State Psychological Association and has um, additionally um, trained in in several forms of therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, schema therapy, and guest out therapies. Um, Scott has created the Transformational Chairwork Training Program and is currently teaching this method um, of psychotherapeutic dialogue to practitioners in the U.S. and in Europe. Scott has had various um, clinical and research interests throughout his career, um, including research around identity, contingency management, some of the biological underpinnings of addiction, and more recently, um, as we said, some work around the affect-laden Gestalt works with, psychothera- um, with psychotherapy and addictions. Scott also did some research as, the, as a lead investigator of the Clinical Trials Network with NIDA, um, which was also on contingency management. Scott, on a personal note, um, I worked with Scott for several years at Rockefeller. Um, that was after my addictions fellowship at Cornell, and just sitting next to him, I learned more than um, I had done in my fellowship. It was a um, real privilege to have um, sat next to Scott and learned so much from him. Ironically, I'd come from a more psychodynamic background and Scott from a cognitive background, and then I remember the first time, Scott, that you came in and um, started using hot emotions in your therapy with your patients and um, we're, and, and now really we've both shifted around and I've developed more of the uh, cognitive interests and you've developed more of the guest out interests. So Scott, hello. Hi. Well, thank you for that very kind and humbling uh, introduction. Uh, but I'm glad to be here with so, you, Mark. So Scott, um, our title for today is The Crisis in Treatment and how to help people change. So tell me, why do you think there's a crisis in addictions treatment today? Well, a few years ago, um, I had the opportunity to write a chapter for the NIDA CSAP lending team on contingency management. And this was an attempt. We had done a major study on contingency management. We had 800 patients. We had sites all over the nation. And it was a successful study basically showing that we could bring 
positive reinforcement models into community-based treatments. And they were trying to move now to more of an educational, there's a website actually up on, on this approach so that we created. But part of this, I sort of wrote like a chapter, Introduction to the Principles and the Foundations. And going through it, I really looked at the data from those studies. And what was interesting was um, in many research studies on research psychotherapy, they typically use the control group as usually a, another therapy that's controlled by the investigators. But in fact, for the contingency management, they had a whole series of studies where they used treatment as usual. So they had gone into very good clinics, and they had given you know, they divided people up to, to treatment as usual control versus treatment as usual plus a reinforcement. So this gave me a chance to look in a very detailed way at how good clinics were doing. And actually, it was really disturbing um, that the results were, were really not good at all in terms of treatment as usual, both in terms of retention and in terms, in terms of um, abstinence. So that really sort of galvanized me. I, mean, I had this suspicion, you know, just from my own experience, but really seeing it in so many over and over again, galvanized me to be very worried about addiction, to really begin to think there really is a crisis in our treatment system. Of course, not every place, but in many places, and how can we begin to uh, improve treatment? So you've mentioned a couple of aspects of what makes that crisis, and one was that abstinence rates were fairly low, and mm -hmm. perhaps more importantly, retention rates, well, some would argue, but retention rates are very low. So people were dropping out of treatment very quickly. Right, so just maybe just give you a few, I don't want to overwhelm the people with numbers, but in a, in a study by Nancy Petrie, a very sort of classic study she did at a, one of the VA hospitals in Connecticut, so this was a very comprehensive program for alcohol treatment. In a 12-week uh, study, we found that only 22% of the patients, the control group, were still in treatment at the end of 12 weeks versus 84% who had gotten the reinforcements. So that's like almost an 80% dropout rate in 12 weeks. In the CTN, on a, so this is 400 patients, multiple sites, looking at uh, patients using cocaine, we found 65% dropout rate in 12 weeks of study. In another study in Connecticut, you, sorry, just one more, using multiple sites, looking at patients using cocaine, heroin, alcohol, in a whole bunch of different treatment programs together, we found an 85% dropout rate at 12 weeks. Wow. So, and, the, and these figures between 50 and 85% are, are typically na typical nationally. Um, looking at some other, you know, longer sort of well, the top studies and reviews of long-term treatment, um, the top study, which looked at methadone clinics, I think in California, found a 65% dropout rate at 12 months. The uh, DARP study found a 23% graduation rate for TCs at 16 months. Yeah. Um, actually, in the study we, I, I did at Rockefeller on the methadone program in New York City, we found a 50% dropout rate at 12 months in methadone. Yeah, which is remarkable given that you're taking a medication with such enormous efficacy when which requires people to be coming to the clinic. Right. And, you know, most people really don't want it. You know, methadone tends to have somewhat higher retention rates. But even there we found, you know, among young adults, we found a 50% dropout rate. So this sort of echoing thing of like this 65%, 75% you know, uh, dropout rate keeps coming up. It's sort of like the law of thirds. I think if you really get it together, you get two-thirds to stay and one-third leave. And if it's not going together, you're getting two-thirds to drop out. So this seemed quite alarming to me in any case. So how did you begin to tease, tease out what... Um, was going on in this situation? 
wasn't sure exactly what was going on. I mean, one thing was also very interesting in this was looking at how well reinforcements did. So this is not quite the topic for today, but that the positive reinforcement systems had dramatic and drastic impact, both improving retention and in improving abstinence rates. So at this point, I kind of feel, and I was just up in one of the state agencies in New York the other day saying, it's incomprehensible to me, really, that community-based programs are not all using reinforcements on a daily basis. Given just we've had power. an excellent show in the past on contingency management and right um, power, even with low levels of, inter- of reinforcement, you can get amazing results. Getting people to come to groups, getting people to stay in treatment, getting people to decrease their drug use. Um, so and yet, the there's been such surprising resistance to this in the clinics. Uh, I mean, there's this great slide from Nancy Peachy's work where she shows that almost a 90% retention rate for people who are getting reinforcements and a 20% retention rate for people who are not. You'd think that would pay for itself, right? That's that mm-hmm. sort of 70% difference in uh, retention rate. You know, these patients are coming, they're bringing money into the clinic, they're, you know, help people have jobs. If nothing else, you'd think you'd do it for that reason. But even for medical reasons, you know, you keep people there. There's always a, you know, there's always a possibility of recovery, of healing. You know, retention is just a great outcome in and of itself. To make the uh, point obvious, um, when people do not come to treatment, is it safe to assume that the vast majority of those people are relapsing to drug use? Well, certainly in the research world, we always assume that if if you've dropped out of treatment, you have relapsed. You know, whether Mm -hmm. people say whether it's specifically true, maybe not, but it's not considered to be a good sign. No, no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... Um, contingency management is something which is increasingly talked about in clinics, not so well taken up, perhaps, um, although um, those clinics which do so show very good improvements in retention and outcomes. It's, it's, it's actually been interesting. There's been some confusion a little bit about the Medicaid laws. Um, actually, there was the NIDA and that went to Medicaid, and said, because um, there was concern there was a violation of anti-fraud, this thing about giving people things to come to the program. But they went to um, Medicaid in the office of the Inspector General, passed a ruling that, that contingency management was not fraud. It was not under the fraud rules, and they were free to go forward. So that was, I'm not sure that's totally out into the world, but that overcame one resistance. The other resistance are more philosophical. People think that you know, patients should want to get better, that you should, you know, it's our whole sort of moral moral issues that drive our field so much in many respects, you know, um, rather than saying, wow, this is an alternative reinforcer. This is a wonderful gift, a wonderful tool we have here to get people started. Not the answer to everything by any means, you know, and not in, actually not an enemy to treatment, but a friend of treatment, really, because it gives you a chance to talk to your patients and talk to them when they're clean and sober, or at least somewhat clean and sober, so you can make more progress. Um, but yes, you know, and interestingly, I've been asked, lately I've been getting more requests to speak on contingency management. So, it's, I think maybe it's back on the rise again or something. So, um, well, there's this, there is this very long delay between research findings, and clinical, and translation to clinical results, right? So, right, and this one I think has been a, a bit of a hard sell for people. They don't really. It seems simple on the, you know, on the surface, but it's more difficult to really understand what it's all about. But we're optimistic. You know, it's a, it's such a fantastic tool. And, uh, One of the um, complexities, as you said, is that people don't want external, don't want to provide external rewards to encourage people towards sobriety, which they feel ought to be um, a somehow better, more enlightened um, uh, um, state, which people naturally want to move toward. 
um, and that should provide enough incentive um, in and of itself to um, encourage ongoing commitment. In fact, in the olden days, not so long ago, um, mm -hmm. that was sufficient justification for programs to ask people to leave and come back when they're ready. Right. right? So I think we're um, so past I, that, you know. Sorry? I, I think we're beginning to move past that time, hopefully. Mm -hmm. we, we chase people away for, for telling them that they're not ready for, for recovery. Do you find that there has been, this brings us to another point, um, which you've written about quite extensively, um, gradualism, harm reduction, and engagement with people who mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to change. Um, do you find that people tend to um, respond? Um, do you think that there has been a shift in, in the clinician's um, perspective on how to engage people who are perhaps in lower stages of change or, or lower levels of commitment to um, abstinence? I think we're seeing a shift. I think it's probably happening most in the dual diagnosis world, you know, where patients, some patients are just very, very difficult patients to uh, to work with, to make contact with. Um, Alan Bellock has created, I think, a really very beautiful treatment program, uh, which is empirically based and supported. It's called BTSAS, um, probably Behavior Therapy for Substance Abusing Schizophrenics in its original acronym. And here he uses a combination of motivational interviewing, motivational incentives or contingency management, harm reduction, and relapse prevention coping skills. And he's doing that all together and really getting quite powerful results with a very difficult population. That's certainly what we do at Westbridge. And um, again, it's very gratifying to see such positive results ourselves. We're going to come back after a short break. to Voice America Health and Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family sense of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Queenie's Happy Hour is the place for fun every Monday night after work. Pull up a bar stool and let your favorite bartender mix up some life, laughter, and learning. 
Queenie, also known as Nancy Wagierski, is a certified facilitator of the Law of Attraction and is here to start your week with a smile and education about making the Law of Attraction work for you. Pour yourself an after-work martini and join us every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for Queenie's Happy Hour on the Voice America Business Channel. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. This is Mark Green, standing in for Mary today. Um, so we're talking with Scott Kellogg. Scott, I know you've grappled for a long time about what helps people change. Um, and tell me a little bit about how you started to ask other people their opinions and um, come up with some kind of consensus on this. Well, for a long time I've been discussing issues with my uh, colleague and friend, Dr. Andrew Tatarski, and... Um, he, I believe, was a guest on your show earlier this year, if I'm not mistaken. He was, that's right. And um, so so I brought up this idea, and then we kind of worked together, that, that maybe we should create a roundtable of some sort where we bring people together from all the different perspectives we could get and sort of ask them, you know, what works? How do people get better? You know, what have you seen, you know, either from your research or from your practice or in your experience? How do people heal and, and change? And we were specifically interested in sort of the psychosocial mechanisms of change as opposed to, say, more biological uh, models of change through medication. Okay, what we so did you're interested we... less in what happens in the brain to different circuits and neurochemically how dopamine or stress systems might um, come back to normal, but more in what happens in people's lives and ways of thinking which could help them um, in the process of change. Right, in terms of therapeutic encounter. I think, I think a, a round table around the neurotransmitters would be a good idea also, but we sort of we figured we'd start where we were a little more comfortable as a psychologist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did was we tried to hunt down as many people as we could, people that we either knew in some way or knew by reputation, you know, as sort of representative figures uh, for different approaches. So we had kind of basically like four groups of people we invited. So we had representatives from, we'd say, the traditional or standard treatment group. So there's like traditional or contemporary outpatient treatment. We had therapeutic community people and uh, some methadone maintenance. Uh, we fortunate to have uh, Ira Marion, who's one of the sort of founders of methadone treatment in uh, America. Um, I know other groups like CSAT and NIDA have had these meetings, but they've never actually had any harm reduction people. So we actually were fortunate enough to be able to get um, the harm reduction group represented, which we felt was really a breakthrough in this kind of dialogue. So we had needle exchange, street youth outreach, moderation management people came, harm reduction psychotherapy, uh, drug policy. Then for more of the scientific-based treatments, we looked at the psych more psychological approaches. We had psychoanalysts come, 
contingency management, which we discussed earlier, relapse prevention, motivational approaches. And the last group is kind of more of a miscellaneous group of people from research or funding, sort of clinical leadership people, adolescent treatment, educators, some of the entheogenic people. So all in all, we had about 25 people, but we we really worked hard to get at least um, some sort of diversity of approach or treatment. Um, just a few more stats. Um, the group was 50 by 50, 50 male, female, slightly more female. Um, people, most people identified themselves as clinicians or administrators, the two most common. It was a predominantly white group. We were not able to get the diversity of ethnicity that we would like, but we did what we could. Um, and most people have been in the field for about 18 years on average. So this was a seasoned oh, You group. made a special emphasis of the fact that you had a harm reduction group, um, right. harm reduction voice there. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you think that was so important? Well, I think, you know, we, we look around the world, harm reduction has been the, the, probably the newest and largest and most creative force in addiction treatment worldwide. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's not been been opposed in the United States for a long time. Maybe this will change under Obama. But, um, you know, throughout the world, harm reduction you know, is often a major um, policy approach in countries or throughout the world. There's something called the four pillars approach, which I'm actually a little mixed about personally. But uh, the four pillars are the way to, to work with addiction is to have prevention, criminal justice, treatment, and harm reduction. And that, you know, national policy should be based on those four pillars. So uh, that's in Canada, that's in Switzerland, other places around the world are adopting the four pillars approach. Um, so we felt it was important to get to have that voice here in America, yeah, even though it sense. is less representative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, well, so what we did, we had two days of talks, and we had people present on their perspectives and people discuss it. We uh, kept notes on what people said, and then we then created a questionnaire based on the themes and the issues that emerged in the dialogue and in the conversation. And then we sent the questionnaire to them and say, how much do you endorse these items on a one to six scale? And out of this, we developed, we found basically nine themes. We were actually amazed, one, people really agreed on what was important. They sort of people knew what they needed to get, what they believed would help people get better. They also picked a lot of things, which is a little unwieldy from a... <laughs> A soundbite perspective, it isn't three things, but um, the people said these are the things. We all sort of, you know, we we saw the elephant the same way. You know, we kind of said, it looks like this. This is what you need to do. Um, so we have a chance to run through some of these themes and look at. What I they think so. Have. Let's let's hear them because these are these are important themes which, um, as we discussed them before the show, um, seem so obvious yet somehow eluding treatment today. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I, I suspect these are things that you guys are doing at Westbridge already, but um, we'll see. So the first one was individualizing treatment. And I think there's kind of this tension in the field um, over time, whether basically you know all addicted people really are the same, or whether addicted people are really very different from each other, or whether it's some sort of mixture. Are they somewhat the same or somewhat different? You know, And I think in the past we've tried to emphasize you know, addicted people are very much alike. You know, you're, you've been through the same experiences. You share commonalities. You know, more recently, I think this is definitely the work of Andrew Tatarsky, but that people are very different. Their addictions are very different. Their histories are very different. Their experiences with the substances are very different. And the treatments really need to be individualized. 
you know, not a cookie-cutter approach, not one-size-fits-all, but real treatment plans as opposed to kind of, you know, for, you're just kind of going through the motions when you create a treatment plan. Right, that was, and yet there are, there are clearly common elements because the, the disease of addiction um, mm-hmm. results in stereotyped um, changes um, in people's behavior and right. way that they make attachments to others, um, and um, which tends to um, diffuse over the course of treatment and individual personalities really emerge. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there needs to be individual, we're saying there needs to be also individual, individualized aspects to and approaches to um, people's treatment. But I increasingly think about things in terms of dialectics, you know, that one, one polarity would be we're all kind of the same and the other polarity is we're all completely individualized and different and probably patients actually fall in somewhere in the continuum between the two. But at least from the insight from this group is that you need to certainly be thinking that they need specific things, you know, and respecting and maybe even that those what people say I'm different from other people, that that's something useful and that's something important to listen to. Rather than right. seeing it as a resistance, or seeing it as a denial, or seeing it as something else, at a risk of getting ahead of ourselves, I know the for, um, emergence and classification of people's identity has been a very prominent theme in your life and work, um, right. and this speaks to it a bit. How um, and to strength-based perspectives, which I think I mentioned in a moment, um, <laughs> how um, the uh, um, as you begin to really emphasize individual difference you're also pulling out people's values and strengths and 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 the emergence of people's identities which will carry them forth in their recovery right i think this is you know more commonly found in psychotherapy in the mental health world you know that we treat people more as if they're different and some ways maybe applying this uh approach to the substance abuse world uh, right in part the second one i don't um, know if you're going to mention stigma at all but um this one size fits all is probably also an, uh, um, another aspect of the stigma that people with addictions have faced um, that um, they're cast aside with a wave as they're all the same. Right, that's sort of the, the horrible expression once a junkie, always a junkie, that kind of, you know, the loss of the individual and those kinds of. Uh, those kinds all right, of so we've got to number one. I'll try to be okay. quiet for a bit. <laughs> Uh, the second one was the therapeutic relationship or the therapeutic alliance. And here are strong levels of endorsement that this is a fundamentally important um, part of treatment. And I think certainly some of the data is showing that, um, you know, if you can form an initial alliance with people, you're more likely to get better treatment outcomes. Um, again, this psychotherapy, kind of a standard idea in, in therapy. But I don't know that we yet in our clinics, especially kind of our more community-based programs, really say, you know, the most important thing with these patients is to create an alliance, to create a therapeutic relationship with these patients, that that's our first, inf- that's our first goal. And, you know, this would mean things like, if a patient says, I don't like my counselor, you listen to them and you switch them to another counselor. Or if a counselor says, I can't, I feel like I can't work with this patient, you switch the patient to another counselor. That you don't just sort of override these things or, well, you know, you listen to this because the alliance is so important. I mean, I don't know your experience. My experience is that we're not there yet for that one. So we don't know. I mean, I, you, I often quote something which you used to say by my side um, mm-hmm. years ago, which was as treatment was 
um, people were asking us why treatment wasn't going well. And you'd, you'd say there's no treatment without a contract and there's no contract without an alliance. Right. You constantly have to go back to looking at that alliance and what's getting in the way before resuming treatment, which can otherwise feel fake and thin. Right, and I think, you know, I mean, and I, I think, you know, people who treat people, especially in the community programs, under a lot of pressure from a lot of sources, you know, criminal justice, other forces at work, and that leads to complica- you know, complications, it leads to, like, this is a luxury we can't afford, et cetera, et cetera, just do what you, you, do what you need to do, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. given the fact that we're having trouble keeping people, and my understanding from the work of Tom McClellan, we're having trouble keeping people even when they're mandated to treatment, they're still dropping out. That, um, you know, looking at the alliance, looking at the therapy relationship, thinking about how we can connect with people and making that a centerpiece of our work, you know, I think that's something to pay attention to. And certainly the group felt that way. That's, you know, that's well, we'll come back to some other points after this short break, okay? Okay. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mark Green standing in for Mary with Scott Kellogg as our guest. 
Scott, you were going through some of the nine key elements of of, um, of treatment um, that emerged in some of your research, and you'd mentioned that of individualizing care and the focus on the alliance, treatment alliance. What are some of the others? Well, what I call horizontal interventions, and by this I sort of mean the person's relationship with their substances. Um, I would say in general, I'll get to this more specifically, the group, regardless of background, was pretty much harm reduction supportive, which was, which was a bit of a shock to us that we found so many people supporting that. But one thing was what Dan Biggs um, has, has developed called substance use management, which is basically for people who are still using substances, you know, teaching them how to use substances in ways that are less dangerous or more safe. Not, of course, that any use is safe, just to be clear, but, you know, working with people maybe to use a different method or use a different substance or use it for a shorter period of time or use it in a different amount or use it in a different location if they are not yet prepared to stop. So that kind of work that he has done there. And then for people who were more oriented towards um, you know, abstinence or kind of a real moderation approach, uh, relapse prevention, of course, which is, is standard, of course, in almost all programs in America. Um, the next one what we call vertical intervention, what I call vertical interventions, which is that you know we're both using the substances and we have kind of inner reasons why we use this. And the, one of the things was called the multiple meanings of addiction. It's got a high level of endorsement, and this is a uh, one of Andrew Tatarski's ideas, is that when people use substances, the use of the substance is meaningful to them in a personal way, and that the meaning, the symbolic meaning, needs to be understood, needs to be respected, and needs to be worked with. So what this means is that when people use substance, they may use the same substance at different times in different ways that have different meanings. So, for example, Pat Denning has written about a case of a patient she had who would use cocaine uh, socially with when she'd go out dancing and partying and that she would snort cocaine. And that was kind of a way to get over her shyness and, and social anxiety and connect with people and be out and sort of celebrate and dance and have pleasure. But sometimes she would sit at home and she would use cocaine intravenously. And that cocaine use was really about playing with the idea of suicide and death. Mm -hmm. So here you had the same substance used in two different ways with two very different meaning systems attached to it. And so people felt this was something worth getting into. It's not just I'm using cocaine, but how am I using it? What does it mean to me? Does it mean different things? Or another way, are different parts of me using the drug at different times? And the importance um, of that is so, is so that the therapist can engage in a meaningful motivational work to, to help the person resolve their, uh, or make different decisions about their drug use in very different mental states. Right. It's, it's a way of understanding just beyond understanding the pattern of, you know, who, what, where, when, and how, but you know, sort of it's really the why of it, you know. Um, and for some people, it may not be that complicated. And some people, it may be, you know, there are actually four different parts of me that use drugs in different ways at different times, you know, reflecting different needs or different desires or different fears. Um, the other one connected to that was um, one of mine was that people have inner wounds. Now, not everybody, you know, is going to make a DSM-4 TR diagnosis, but certainly there's huge levels of trauma, as you well know. And if, that's individual therapy should be an essential part of drug treatment, and it isn't always. And in some cases, the, the, the treatment of the psychological problems may need to come first before people are willing to stop using substances. So if we see that substances may in part be a coping mechanism or way of dealing with inner pain, some people say, I'm not willing to get rid of that, stop those drugs until I feel I can deal with this pain directly. 
So, of course, in many programs, it's, let's stop the drugs and we'll deal with the problems. But we're moving, maybe moving towards more integrated treatments or even like, you know, let's treat people while they're still using. I realize this is, this is more in private practice because we, they're not really going to stop yet until they feel they have some, some security about the trauma or the anxiety disorder or the depression or the inner deadness or whatever it is that's bothering them. Yeah, and um, I think this, com- this point comes into so many aspects of, of um, care and engaging uh, with someone with um, substance use issues. Um, you can't just ex- ask them to quit using their drugs if you haven't really helped them um, identify ways that they can cope with some of their anxieties or the reasons why they're using their drugs um, and alcohol. And you have to collaborate to come up with reasonable alternatives or else to help the person bear their states without the use of the drugs and alcohol. Well, I think in, in the old, old days, people would see that as kind of a denial or some sort of, you know, it was just they didn't take it very seriously. You know, I think in the 80s when we really saw the emergence of trauma it just at such mm. horrific rates, and now I think we're seeing more and more of a respect that, that people do use for reasons sometimes, and the reasons yeah. need to be addressed. I don't think we're fully there yet, but I think you know the field is definitely opening up to that. Yes. Um, another one, we talked about this before, the issues about motivation. So um, the group was highly endorsing the idea that, that this idea that part of me wants to use drugs and part of me wants to stop or change, it's important that both of these parts get into the room. Um, so, you know, one way to do this, of course, is motivational interviewing, which, in my opinion, looks easy, but I think it's quite difficult to do. Um, I, I mean, the studies are finding a lot of people having a lot of difficulty actually getting motivational interviewing down. But mm-hmm. I think here's an idea of the part that wants to use, the part that wants to stop engaging in some sort of dialogue. Um, personally, I'd be, this, the way I work with it is dis, using a decisional balance. You know, what's the positives of your drug use? What's the negatives? What's the positives of your recovery? And what's the negatives of recovering? And really trying or to not get using. These, rather, what's that? Rather than recovery. The neg- positive and negative of not using. Well, actually, even the negatives of recovery. You know, I don't. I'm going to have to go to these meetings. I'm going to have to give up my friends. I'm going to, you know, you know, that whole. Or I feel grief at the loss of, you know. Um, so I'm kind of a fan of uh, Dr. Drew and uh, Celebrity Rehab. But um, you know, one thing that strikes me in that show, at least the way it's edited, is no one's allowed to speak about the joys of using drugs and the downside of getting better, the downside of recovery. Mm-hmm. And from this perspective. You need those voices need to get into the room. People need to be allowed to speak freely about that because if they can't speak freely, it opens them up for relapse and slips. So you now that's really, I think, a um, very different approach that has evolved throughout um, motivational interviewing over the last ten years. But Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like Dr. Drew's approach really. Um, was much more was in, is an example of what was much more prevalent in the field um, before that time. Right. I think I, you know. I think he's a very brave man. I think he's a little conservative sometimes in his treatments, um, but that came forward. And we've talked about before my own work using chair work um, or the sort of gestalt dialogues where I have the patient sit in one chair and talk about how they love the drugs and want to use the drugs and don't want to get better. And the other chair where they speak about, you know, the drugs are killing me, I want to stop, you know, I want it. I want recovery, I want a life. And really going to much more psychodramatic, much more highly emotional ways of having this internal dialogue between the parts. 
and really dividing the person into parts and labeling the parts. You know that, and also there may be more than one person that uses, which is interesting too. Right? There may be a person who uses for pleasure inside. You know, part that uses for pleasure and a part that uses for self-medication. And these may yeah. might be better to see them as two different parts of the person rather than just one collapsed. Mm-hmm. But this high level of emotional stuff, I think, is very important that we were discussing off offline here. Yes, I mean, so we're we're talking about a couple of things here. The motivational interviewing techniques, I think, do rely on um, discussing very straightforwardly with the um, client the what they perceive as their reasons for con- wanting to continue using, um, mm-hmm. and helping them resolve the dis the dissonance, the clash between these two aspects of themselves. You're talking about a chair work approach, which I think um, you've really pioneered, um, where you make these parts very explicit and give free voice to one side exclusively and then the other side exclusively, correct? That's correct, yes. And then there... you find that that's a very evocative and emotionally charged intervention? Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. I actually find it, as I teach you know, therapists and counselors, it's, it's easier to learn. You can actually learn it pretty quickly, and it's very powerful. And uh, I think you know, the patients are kind of impressed with it. The therapists are kind of impressed with it. Um, and I think this thing of label we call modes in schema therapy are these subcells and these parts, labeling these parts um, even you know, in many things we're doing in therapy, if we label a part, we can get a little distance from it. We can see that part. You know, mm. and uh, the people in the old days were talking about my disease is acting up, or my disease. You know, or now we're talking about my brain, and we're talking about well, you know, the the pleasure guy wants to, the party guy wants to take over, or you know, the the sick part is calling out for medicine right now, and I I, I can't give it to him that way. You know, and that gives us space. That gives us a place to be, rather than being overwhelmed by these these forces within us. Do you encourage the different parts of the of the client to um, debate each other? Um, usually, I start with them just affirming each other. You know, really making their stance. I, I love those drugs. I want those drugs. Or the drugs are killing me. I'm going to die. I'm losing everything. You know, and make it as powerful and dramatic as possible. And then they can dialogue. You know, debate depends on the person. Some people may be better. They don't debate first. Other times, it's like, yeah, let's have the debate. Let's go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, often there's a lot of grief that people feel, you know, about giving up um, the substances. Maybe that has to come into the room. You know, they've been my friend for 20 years of, of some sort, and what is life like without them? I'm scared. I'm sad. You know. Um, now, now I think I think that this has been this is quite a um, controversial area in in psychotherapy all around, but especially in addictions, and also I think with um, the treatment of people with. Um, severe and um, persistent mental illnesses. The mobilization of hot emotions in the mm-hmm. therapy t- tended to be deferred later into treatment when the assumption is that people can have better coping strategies and um, perhaps a better support network, um, which enables them to deal with the affect without a, a trigger response of um, relapse. Mm-hmm. So, so would you follow that? Um, idea, or are you suggesting that, in fact, mobilizing careful mobilization of the affect earlier on in the treatment course um, can be more important? Well, I think with the chair work, there are two things. One is is the giving voice to a part, 
and the other is the affect. And I realize that these are intertwined, but they are perhaps a little bit discernible. Um, I mean, you could start out, you know, on the quieter side, more just like, can you just give, gently give the voice or make the argument, you know? Mm-hmm. And then can we escalate the emotion, you know, through the next round? And you can see where patients are. How do you feel? Do you feel doing this? Do you feel triggered? Do you feel, you know, afraid? Or do you feel comfortable? So there may not be a hard and fast yeah. rule. But yeah, again, I mean, I'd like, I think that the mobilization of affect, um, of emotion is terribly important because if we're not doing it in the office, it's going to happen at home or in the face of an argument or as people are lying in bed contemplating. And in some ways, this is an important exposure, um, measured exposure, um, which can assist people in their recovery. We've got to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you lack energy and enthusiasm? Do you really want to change your thoughts and feelings? Can you really stay sane when your life isn't? Of course you can. Just by listening to Stay Sane Now each week with Claudine Strzok and co-host Wesley Stoller. You'll have fun and learn how to make each new day the best day of your life. Every show is designed to energize and get you started off on the next week. Stay Sane Now is broadcast live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pestor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green with my guest, Scott Kellogg. We were talking off air, and there's a couple of things we do want to emphasize. This isn't something to be done at home necessarily. Um, there is a, a careful balance to be um, to be weighed between the mobilization of hot emotional affects and the support and coping um, with this, which enables um, people to move forward in their recovery rather than quickly relapse. Um, 
And then there were several other very important points which emerged in the addictions treatment roundtable talks, which included, um, Scott, would you like to, to complete that? Yeah, list? just one more thing about the, the chair work is, and this is actually sort of parallels what we did at the roundtable, was that we want all the voices to be welcome in treatment. You know, the, the voices that love the drugs, that are angry at the drugs, that want a better life, that are afraid to get better, that everybody can get to speak. And, you know, chair work is a great way to do that, but even if you don't do that, to be open to that with your, your patients, you know, to really try to get everybody and say, you're, they're welcome here. They're welcome to speak, at least in individual therapy. They're welcome to speak here. Because um, imp- it's important that they do speak. Because if they don't speak, they will come back to haunt us. And that's what the psychodynamic people have taught us. They will come back and they will undermine the treatment. Mm-hmm. In terms of some other things that we found, um, certainly, you know, I've been talking a lot about the individual, but certainly people use in social contexts and people recover in social contexts. And not surprisingly, there was huge support for peer support, for self-help, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12-step fellowships, smart recovery, uh, moderation management. You know, all of our great... Um, you know, traditions in our field that have obviously, you know, rescued and saved millions of people. So those were clearly in supported. Both adult, in, in both the dual disorders world and um, addictions in, um, addictions world, the um, peer and consumer movements have really, I think, brought an enormous wealth to um, our clinical insights and taught, continue to teach us so much. And... Um, so that, that really emerged in your work. And two aspects which uh, Westbridge very firmly um, embrace are mm-hmm. the involvement of family and the fostering of um, the, the family and cha- um, as a supportive network with mm-hmm. improved communication um, and the continuity of care over, over a long period of time across um, different stages of change. Um, did you find that those two were important factors for many clinicians? Well, family tre- family treatment certainly came across. You know, um, it sounds like you're, you're you guys are actually doing many of the things we didn't have to even do the roundtable. Just had to Xerox a copy of your website. But anyway, um... I know we we, we, do, we do tend to have fab- fabulous treatment and and therefore very good retention and recovery rates. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, yeah, family treatment certainly uh, was one. Um, one other one that was interesting was uh, issues about pleasure deficits or alternative and complementary approaches, you know, which I think are also on the rise. Things like uh, acupuncture or yoga or you know, exercise. NIDA is getting very interested in exercise at the moment, um, helping people to either regain their capacity for pleasure or gain one that they never had one in the first place. You know, whether it's endorphin imbalances. Um, but this, I think, you know, we're going to see more and more of this. Meditation may be another way to do this, or relaxation techniques, teaching people how to feel pleasure again. Um, or One without pleasure we do without at, uh, Westbridge is we, we try and mobilize this in many different ways. We might go to the gym with participants or mm-hmm. um, have a jogging group or a, um, or a cooking group. Um, so, and we also um, do a lot of musical performance. Um, mm-hmm. together um, with community organizations, especially up here, Right Turn, um, which is a wonderful organization for creative people in recovery, um, which helps people get in touch with hidden qualities that have lain dormant in them for too long and begin to um, identify new potential valued goals for them as they move forward in their recovery. 
Well, this is great to hear. This is a paper by George Greaves, which you can get on the Internet from like the 70s, where he talked about this issue of pleasure deficits, but he believed that um, probably because of trauma that many addicted people have, a, have a, had real problems experiencing pleasure and real problems ex- being able to play, um, mm-hmm. you know, and play in a whole sorts of way of the pleasure of play, the creativity of play, that kind of way of being with the world that they didn't have that possibility. And I think, yeah. you know, that's... Uh, Quite tragic, actually. To see that. Yeah. Um, now, you, so we're describing um, some w- wonderful elements of treatment, which mm-hmm. I feel proud to work with an organisation that can uh, can can translate that into the into the treatment that we offer um, with participants. Um, but we said at the beginning that this is not treatment as usual. What do you find are the chief obstacles? Uh, which impedes um, this translation and results in the crisis in treatment that you were describing. Well, well, one thing I think one of the goals of this was if we could identify, you know, some of these mechanisms of change or these themes, that programs could then begin to think about using them in conscious ways. I think that, you know, some programs are probably using some of these things or even many of these things, but not really consciously. So they're doing some of the stuff already some of the time. But if they can sort of focus on and say, this is important, or even say, let me just choose three or four of these, um, you know, that I think, that's my hypothesis, at least, that that will improve treatment or improve retention. Yeah. I think the resistance in part, I think, is our field. Um, we are very torn between the idea that addicted people are people who are sick and need help, or the addicted people are bad people who need to be punished. And this runs through our, our our society, our programs, our clinicians, and our patients. I think we all wrestle with this. And this, you know, is a difficult issue. And I think this sometimes blocks us, um, especially when for patients who are difficult, you know, um, or hard to work with, you know, to be to try these kinds of things with people. We're also, I think, very get very anxious about people using drugs that they could hurt themselves, I and mean, that makes us very tense. Um, right. Yeah, and you were talking about the substance use management of Dan Briggs and um, coaching people to use safer methods, right. uh, which which will result in less death, um, right. and hopefully engage them, move move you toward um, gradually um, improved outcomes. But there's a lot of concern about that because are you teaching people and condoning use, um, and you you have to as a clinician and as an organization, except that you're dealing with a risk of death on a daily basis? Well, I think the reality is that people who are doing this kind of work are dealing it in harm reduction settings where people simply come because they want to come and they're trying to do something to try and keep them alive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not doing it at Westbridge. You know? So in, in, the reality is these are actually in different settings with different patients with different motivational systems. You know, these people who show up and they're trying to get their attention, so you maybe try and keep you alive for a little bit longer. Maybe if you try using this method or that method, if you're going to use drugs, this might keep you alive. This is not an ultimate answer. You know, this, in my own work on gradualism, I say this is a start. It's not a beginning. Well, but actually, you start I mean, we, people. Do, we do do this kind of work at Westbridge um, mm-hmm. in order to engage people um, first, as they first come into treatment without any commitment to stopping using drugs. And following your own ideas of gradualism, hope for more um, and aim for more with them. Scott, it sounds like we've come to the end of our show, and I wish we had another hour or two. 
Um, you've been a wonderful guest, and uh, we've covered an awful lot of ground. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a great pleasure to be here, and great pleasure to talk to you again, Mark. And uh, you know, you have a great program, and uh, let's hope we can lose the field for it. Okay, take care. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.